Podcast, brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute. And I'm Dana Humphrey, the associate director of the Mary Christie Institute, and we're the hosts of the podcast. I'm so excited about today's episode of the Quadcast. We have some terrific guests with some great new information about college student mental health. Dr. Zainab Akolo, formerly from the Lumina Foundation, is now Senior Vice President of Policy, Advocacy, and Government Relations at the Jed Foundation. And Stephanie Markin is a partner at Gallup, where she runs the education division. Together, they worked on eye-opening research showing the correlation between mental health and emotional stress and stopping out of college. Stopping out meaning withdrawing from college or university for a period of time. So we're going to talk about that today, both the findings themselves and the implications for higher education. The new report is called Stressed Out and Stopping Out the Mental Health Crisis in Higher Education. It was released by both Lumina and Gallup, and we're excited to have both of you here today to talk about it. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. Really, thanks for being here. Stephanie, first question. The report was officially released, what was it, in April? Yes. I've seen it. It was very well received by the higher education press. I'm not surprised because of what it shows. I'll jump right to, I think, what was the first headline, although there's a number of nuggets in here that we want to talk about. But the survey shows that mental health is topping affordability as a barrier to completion. So I wanted you to comment on that, but also, can you bring us through some of these key findings? Yes. So mental health challenges among the currently enrolled college student population have really been steadily increasing, but many people falsely assume that this is because of the pandemic. And unfortunately, what our research more generally at Gallup shows is there's been really a rising tide of unhappiness, stress, anxiety, worry among the total U.S. adult population, as well as individuals globally really for the better part of the last 10 to 15 years, long prior to the pandemic. Of course, the pandemic, like so many things, really just exacerbated the challenge that we were already facing, not just in our society more generally, but also for the currently enrolled college student population. So from 2020 to 2021, the Lumina Foundation Gallup State of Higher Education study really demonstrated a rapid increase in issues of mental health and its impact on students' ability to stay enrolled in college, we really saw a record increase in those rates that essentially doubled in the U.S. currently enrolled student population, which is really unprecedented. When you think about so many of our polls at Gallup, you know, year over year, we might detect a two to three, maybe five percentage point change in a trend to question that we've asked over time. In this case, we saw essentially the percentage of currently enrolled college students reporting that mental health was the reason they considered stopping out double in that same period of time. And then in 2022, the most recent study we just released, we found we essentially sustained those rates. And unfortunately, what's new this year, and I think really important as we consider this great challenge we're all facing across all of the currently enrolled student populations in the U.S., is that prospective students are also reporting this as a major challenge, keeping them from enrolling in the first time. So it's not just currently enrolled students who are struggling with mental health and emotional stress, which is keeping them from imagining their ability to continue and remain enrolled. But it's also the prospective student population that's saying, I'm too stressed, I'm too overwhelmed, 
I'm struggling with mental health considerations and concerns, and that's keeping me from enrolling in the first place. So it's both populations that are reporting this major challenge. It's really keeping them from realizing their post-secondary goals. And unfortunately, what we also see is that mental health issue, the emotional stress that we've uncovered in the research is not felt equally among the total currently enrolled student population. Women, as an example, are far more likely than their male peers to report they've struggled with emotional stress and mental health and that it's impacted their ability to continue on in their education or enroll in the first place. Wow, Stephanie, that's a a lot to unpack. Let me start with what you mentioned at the beginning, which is making sure that we all understand that this is not just about the declining enrollment and the stopping out we saw due to the pandemic itself in terms of the actual circumstances of people's lives. This is really focusing in on the emotional stress and the mental health impacts potentially of the pandemic, but not just that, correct? Exactly. So I'm going to ask you, Dr. Okolo, to talk a little bit about something I noticed, that the survey included personal mental health reasons separate from emotional stress in the survey instrument. Why was this an important distinction? And was this something that Lumina was particularly interested in? Yes, great question. So first, from a clinical perspective, it's really important to make the clear distinction that it is very possible for a student or for a person to struggle with acute emotional stress and not necessarily have a mental health diagnosis. It is also possible for a student or a person to have a mental health diagnosis and challenge, receive support and help, and not actually have day-to-day challenges with acute emotional stress. So what this report offered for me personally as a clinician, and I think for the work at large, was the opportunity for us to not only learn about the direct impact that mental health was playing in higher ed outcomes, as Stephanie had mentioned, but also to broaden our lexicon around mental health. Because for so long, due to general societal stigma, folks weren't willing to share or openly engage around their own personal mental health challenges. And the term mental health was actually synonymous with challenge. And that's just not an accurate description of the definition of mental health. It encompasses a broader range, a broader spectrum of how you are managing both your mental stability, your emotional control, your ability to center yourself and your wellness. And we wanted to make space for this by proactively ensuring that those surveyed were cleared on how those questions were being asked and to also give us a better understanding on how to engage the topic overall. That is an important distinction. Thank you for bringing us through that. It has equity implications there as well. I'd like for you to expand a bit on that and also talk a bit more about what Stephanie had introduced, which were the demographic differences in the responses and what implications that has for higher ed. Absolutely. So first, let's dig into the data that we discovered from this study. So across race, 44% of non-Hispanic white students reported the highest frequency of emotional stress, followed by Hispanic students at 38%, Black students at 31%, and Asian students at around 30%. Now, this is important to note that there are significant disparities in the ways in which mental health is discussed and engaged across varying cultural groups due, again, to things like stigma and access, which can ultimately disproportionately influence the willingness of students 
from some demographics to be open around mental health at all, which is something that we made sure we noted in the report. The report also highlights differences across life stage. Younger students, those between the ages of 18 and 24, we found that these populations were more likely to report emotional stress at around 43% as compared to older students or older adults at around 29%. And then finally, for those who have not enrolled in post-secondary education, as as Stephanie mentioned earlier, emotional stress was a major reason for women at 71% and young adults age 18 to 24 at around 77%. The data offers key implications for higher education, particularly a compelling roadmap towards further investments in mental health when we think about student success from an enrollment and completion perspective. One of the main considerations that must be made is really around access and representation when it comes to mental health, right? Especially when we're thinking about destigmatizing ways in which different demographics engage the resource of mental health practice, practitioners, talking to therapists, talking to psychologists, and the like. And it's studies like these that help expand our knowledge in the space overall by getting an understanding about what our populations are asking for, what they are needing, and what barriers stop them from engaging the resources that they need at the time for success. So a lot here, obviously, for higher education to think about in terms of their response. And I do want to talk about that because you had a a robust implications section that I want to discuss. Staying on the demographics for a minute, you mentioned higher emotional stress for those students who say their family was poor and often struggled to pay monthly bills. I'm curious, this does bring in the element of affordability here as well. The financial stress and ability to afford college is still a huge barrier for a large portion of the population. Isn't isn't that true? And maybe I'll ask you, Stephanie, that because I, I know you do broader work in this area. Absolutely. Affordability is a huge consideration. We found affordability and mental health and emotional stress were the three major causes students reported they'd considered stopping out, but they're highly connected and interrelated. I mean, if you're experiencing significant financial stress, it's inevitable that that presents as emotional stress that also impacts your ability to be present academically. If you think about a currently enrolled college student who's really stressed about how they're making their rent or even expenses above and beyond tuition, let alone tuition itself, It's very hard for them to show up academically in their coursework as well. So all of this actually connects to one another. We can't talk about mental health and emotional stress without talking about affordability and just the financial preparedness of many students who are currently enrolled in in the college experience. We found that when we asked, you know, currently enrolled college students, the reasons they were stopping out, affordability, of course, came up overwhelmingly. But for prospective students, when we asked them, what would get you to go back to higher education for those who temporarily stopped out. They also reported emergency financial aid and financial support would be really critical for them to re-enrolling in higher education. So it's a really important tool as we think about retention of currently enrolled students, but it's also a critical tool we think about attracting prospective students back to higher education or to enrolling in the first place. Right. And and back to Dr. Okolo for a minute, this does imply that Colleges really need to be thinking differently about the supports for students. As Stephanie says, whether it's the conflation of financial stress and mental health. But what are some ideas that you recommend in the paper? So Stephanie was absolutely right. This is significant because 
even in clinical practice, what we know is that mental health challenges are, again, only exacerbated by par- parallel life challenges related to very basic needs, whether that be housing, access to nutrition, and in this case, basic cost of living finances. So when students are having challenges around just making rent, making ends meet, paying for tuition, we can find that they are having challenges with their emotional stability, emotional stress management, and their mental health overall. And the way higher education can respond to this need is by first identifying and acknowledging the significance of this need by seeing mental health as health, ensuring students have access to both free mental health services and resources and trainings on campus, whether that be a set number of sessions that they have on campus for free, which many institutions already engage with, along with opportunities to engage their insurance and proactively thinking through ways to remove barriers that would discourage students from engaging with resources. And one thing that I'm getting to do in my new role at Jed Foundation, where we empower and support campuses to be fully equipped to not only address students with their intersecting needs around mental health, but also train up a culture and community of care around mental health on campus, making sure that institutions feel equipped to support students as well. And when we think about that, we also think about the faculty that they engage with, the practitioners, the advisors that they engage with as well. So it's really about creating a community of care on campus that allows students to reach out for help when they need it. Right. And and you include an interesting finding in the report about students who report having supportive relationships with faculty, mentors and peers being less likely to stop out. So that seems like a huge message to schools as well. And I would actually ask either of you to comment, but also this correlates a bit with some of Gallup's other work, does it not, Stephanie? Absolutely. I mean, when we consider the larger enrollment crisis in the United States, This research becomes, I think, a really critical piece of information for administrators as they consider what are the levers that they could pull to address the enrollment decline really systematically. So as we've talked about before, Marjorie, we see that enrollments were declining long before, of course, the pandemic. Many people, I think, falsely assume actually the pandemic is to blame for the enrollment declines over the course of the last few years across post-secondary institutions, but enrollments were declining long before the pandemic. And they've temporarily halted slightly. Certainly the rate of decline has slowed, but we still see declines among the two-year associate degree population. And unfortunately, we also see great disparities in terms of who's stopping out of higher education. So Black men, as an example, are far more likely to be declining in their enrollment patterns as compared with their peers. So that's a huge problem. As we think about mental health as being a major cause of this, We have to think differently about how do we solve for mental health issues across campuses. As Zainab mentioned, there are so many things administrators can do to address this mental health crisis. Of course, making resources more readily accessible to students is really critical. We also have to think about their upstream and downstream interventions that can be implemented in college settings. So upstream meaning things that help students build resistance and resilience and also create a connection and community within their campus so that they can overcome some of these challenges as they're presented as opposed to downstream resources that are absolutely critical around mental health and support and counseling that can be made available to students. So thinking about those two types of interventions in concert, I think is really important. We also have to consider what is the currently enrolled student population today? You know, so often we talk about currently enrolled college students, we think very specifically and monolithically about an 18 to 22 year old who is attending courses in person in a campus-based setting. In reality, what we know is 
majority of college students today are actually adult learners. They're not 18 to 22 year olds. And they're facing a lot of competing responsibilities at the same time. They have elder care, child care responsibilities. They're also often working part or full time while enrolled in a college course or in their degree granting program. So the types of interventions and support they need are very different than an 18 to 22 year old might need. So if we think about how do you solve for the mental health crisis, we also have to think about who are we trying to meet and what are the challenges that they're facing when they are presented with these significant mental health challenges. This episode of the Quadcast is brought to you by the generosity of Christie Campus Health, dedicated to supporting the mental health and well-being of college students. I'm wondering, again, key message to colleges and universities that are grappling with and trying to address this issue of the college mental health crisis. Your data show that it's complicated, right? And it's bigger than that is what I'm sort of hearing. And emotional stress and mental health, uh, again, they do overlap, although they're important distinctions. So what colleges and universities should be thinking about, just as emotional stress threatens stopping out, the inverse is no doubt true, correct? In that supporting both improving overall well-being as well as addressing mental health issues should significantly address this problem. Are you hopeful that's the case? I am hopeful that addressing the significant mental health crisis in the United States would improve enrollment considerations. But I also know that this is such a complicated issue and there are so many different challenges students are facing as it relates to mental health support that they need. As Zena mentioned earlier, you know, every student has a different mental health or type of support that they really require. So as I think about college campuses nationally and the things that they're most struggling with, many of them are resource constrained. They're really struggling to meet basic mental health counseling service requirements among their student population. That's where I think we need to get creative about the different interventions that can be implemented across the currently enrolled student experience. I'll give you a really key example. So many of the students that we interview qualitatively say that the biggest mental health challenge that they're experiencing, the biggest cause of their emotional stress is what they perceive as feeling extremely lonely. And sometimes I think that surprises folks who are present on a college campus and see this incredibly busy place with many individuals. The students are really struggling to make connections with one another. So you think about what can you do to implement an intervention that can really improve students being able to connect with one another and not just connect in the typical sense where they're in a physical classroom together and they're discussing coursework that may be relevant or working on a project together, but really connect, really feel seen within the community. We have a, a proprietary assessment we use here at Gallup called the Clifton Strengths Assessment. About a quarter of currently enrolled college students will take it when they join their college campus. And it's a really simple assessment that helps people understand what are their unique talents and what are ways in which they could describe what they do best. And for so many college students, what we hear anecdotally once they take the assessment is, I feel seen, I feel valued, and I feel like I have something unique I can share. But it also gives them a common language to connect with other students. They can say, oh, I'm really high in communication. I love to process things out loud. And somebody else says, me too. That's why I'm taking this course that I really enjoy. It's a really easy way for them to make a connection to another individual who's like them. But we need more examples of that on college campuses nationally, where people can make a connection 
to one another and form a real relationship. So when they're struggling with these mental health concerns that we're talking about today, there's somebody they can turn to because the support system is so critical in all of this, whether that be friends on campus, family members who are not on campus, they need somebody who they can turn to and really rely upon to share their struggles, but also to get help and support if they need it. That's great, Stephanie. Zainab, what are, what are your thoughts on that? I completely second everything that Stephanie just shared. And what I would add is that given the pandemic, although it did not cause the crisis, it definitely exacerbated it. And what we mean by that is that we're still dealing with the, for some of us, we don't think it's the aftermath, the current impact of a pandemic that wiped out a a significant percentage of our population. Students lost one or both caregivers or coming back to campus with some trauma that they're dealing with. And so when I think about resources that students need to be successful, I can only hope that in putting up and standing up the resources that students are clearly asking for, that, that it would encourage them to stay on their academic path and pursue their goals. One way that we can do this, another way that we can do, to, do this in, in, in support of everything that Stephanie just mentioned in terms of having students find ways to find what they bring uniquely to the campus, helping them find their niche and their people and like-minded students and their community. Because one foundational bedrock of student services is really around theories around student belonging and what that does in terms of determining student success. Another way to support that is to ensure that leadership is very vocal around this work. And that includes having presidents speak out about the importance of mental health, having faculty be well-trained and well-versed on these resources, having them also engage in the resources as they need it so that the entire campus is shifting towards a culture and community of wellness, of care, and so that students do not feel isolated in in their path towards wellness and care and engaging resources. And and what's interesting is that we have an opportunity to kind of shift the higher ed business model to ensuring that when our students graduate, they don't graduate from a perspective of they survived campus, but they graduate and they go into society, they go into their careers having thrived and learned how to manage their emotions, advocate for themselves, engage positive resources, and kind of get through life's challenges that are inevitably coming even after they leave campus. And I think that's a new way that we need to think about the way we're socializing our students is what happens the next time we have a larger challenge. What can we do? We should look at this as an opportunity to prepare the next cohort of leaders, of educators, of researchers to be able to handle that. And on campus, we have an opportunity now to engage those resources. So the stakes then are so high around this, correct? Because one of the things, Stephanie, you mentioned, it's that your research shows that it's not just those that are enrolled in college who are citing emotional stress as reasons for stopping out, but it is those who are not yet enrolled and citing this as a barrier to doing so. So that actually leads to, I I guess this will be my last question. It's related, but a a little bit different. And that is about the value of of higher ed. And and as Zainab, as you say, what is it that higher ed is meant to be doing? And 
what you mentioned is, I think, an emerging trend or maybe something that has been lost in the last few decades, which is higher ed's role in really human development, right, as well as workforce development and understanding that they have an opportunity here to really form a community and, as you say, um, graduate students who are thriving. So one of the things I thought was interesting in the data is that you found that only 12% of the students that you surveyed did not believe that a college degree would help them achieve their goals. So that indicates that a large majority do believe this still. And I was very interested in this statistic because in a way, it sort of goes against an emerging narrative that a college degree is perceived to be losing its value. We see a lot of that with the Pew Research. I might start with you, Stephanie. Do you have a comment on that? I think our results definitely debunk this myth that higher education is deemed less important or particularly valuable to individuals. We actually find in our research in partnership with Lumina Foundation that most Americans are actually pretty positive on the value of higher education. This includes those who are currently enrolled and those who've stopped out or never enrolled before in post-secondary education and training. The problem is, is that many view it as unaffordable. Right. Most Americans believe that very few Americans actually have access to quality, affordable post-secondary education. And that's a huge problem. So as you consider, you know, perceptions of value, most Americans are saying it's very important or somewhat important to achieving a high quality job. And yet it's an elite system reserved for the very few who can access that system. Now what's interesting in that narrative is that we know there are plenty of pathways above and beyond a four-year traditional college degree experience that are actually incredibly affordable and accessible. You take, for example, a two-year community college program, a certification or certificate somebody could actually enroll in. Those programs are generally pretty affordable and accessible for most Americans. But what we hear in the media is a real focus on the four-year traditional degree granting experience. And I think that has led a public to believe that all of higher education is inaccessible. We kind of paint all of higher education, all post-secondary education training programs with a very wide brush and believe that they are unaffordable. So we need to do more to make more Americans aware of other non-traditional pathways as it relates to post-secondary education and training. But absolutely, we find that most Americans believe it's important, it's valuable, it's a better, sure path to a great job and a great life. They just don't think they can afford it. Sadam, I know you do so much work in the equity space and you'll continue to do that with your advocacy at at, at Jed. Do you have a comment on what Stephanie just described? Yes, I I, I do. I, I think, again, Stephanie and I are completely in, in sync. <laughs> Access is going to be extremely important in addressing just some of the needs that the report and reports like this have uncovered. A lot of the the good work that folks like Lumina and other organizations that have been really focusing on what students need for success have done is they've successfully lifted issues around stigma. And with that is going to be a new influx of demand. And so although that for me as a practitioner, that's really exciting, but it it requires a certain level of coordination and ensuring that we are defining things correctly, particularly when we think about, and you had mentioned earlier, some of the challenges around loneliness and what that looks like. I believe the Surgeon General just released a report, was it yesterday, of the impacts of loneliness and how it impacts lifespan. All of those different pieces should now be translated into how we think about mental health, both from a practice point of view, but also how it shows up in our healthcare system so that there are no barriers 
two resources. And then on top of that, from an equity perspective, there has to be keen attention paid to representation. Because whether we want to acknowledge it or not, representation matters, particularly for communities that have been shut out from such resources. And so when we think about having practitioners on campus, making sure that we have a diverse array of practitioners that are not only representative of the student body, but also have a clear representation of skill sets to address the needs that students come to campus with. Thank you so much, both of you. This has been a fantastic conversation. I, I will, again, provide my own comment here. Just it seems to me that this is more evidence for one of the discussion points that we often have, which is the need to integrate student success with well-being and equity. I mean, really, they're all meant to be one domain. So thank you so much. This kind of research is such a valuable springboard for important conversations like this. I thank you both for your contributions and thank you for being on the Quadcast. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for having us. This has been the Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening.